Hi everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Advice Around the World. We're Ian Horn and Amelia Garland from CityWire and we're here to talk about the stories, quirks and pioneers that make financial planning what it is. And this week, Ian is up at 10pm in London. Sorry Ian, payback after our episode <laughs> in Australia. Together. As we take this podcast to New Zealand to speak with Nick Stewart, the CEO of Stewart Group. Nick is a born and bred Kiwi and took over Stewart Group from his father, Don. The firm is locally owned and operated and is well recognized for its branding across New Zealand. Nick has worked tirelessly in his career to ensure that financial services are held to higher standards and represented fairly in government decisions. Nick is also deeply passionate about New Zealand politics. Now, that was a mouthful, but Nick Stewart. Welcome to Advice Around the World. So hi, Nick. Um, look, we've, we've welcomed you. Um, you've, you've got to take part in a, an advice around the world tradition now. The first thing we always do is this question. And what I need you to do is, is imagine you're at a dinner party, uh, which you can actually do because you're in New Zealand. Um, not that I'm bitter or anything. Um, but the person next to you has asked you to tell us something interesting about yourself, something that we wouldn't know, something a bit different. So, so Nick, what's your answer? Well, despite the fact that I'm very, very fair and I look very, very Scottish, I have... Um some Māori um, Naitahu uh, ancestry. So how does that kind of fit into your, your cultural heritage? Do you observe any traditions or do you, do you kind of do anything to recognise that? Yeah, yeah, we do. In fact, I've, um, actually we're hiring a, um, a camper van in about three weeks' time and we're going to go on a tour down the bottom of the South Island to our rohi or you know, family ancestral lands and we're going to take a tiki tour of all of these traditional sites and things that were really special to those uh, ancestors of a bygone era. So something really right. unique. The reason why I say that is that quite a few New Zealanders actually find they have um, native or Maori ancestry, they just don't know it because they haven't um, haven't yet delved into their family history, going back to the, you know, often the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, eighteen seventies. It's interesting. And now I've been told by Katie Cullen, who's a great friend of ours in the states, um, but I've told you make some of the best honey in the world, and you have <laughs> one of the most interesting wine collections. So, can you tell us a bit more about this as well? Sure. Well, um, when, when I was a little nipper, um, my, my, my family had um, an orchard. And so my father was a financial advisor for five days of the week, Monday to Friday. And on the weekends, um, he was an orchardist. And we had about, I think it got up to about 40 beehives, which is a, that's a lot of beehives. I only have four beehives. But I always decided that when I was older and when I had children of my own, that I wanted them to have some appreciation for all things flora and fauna. And, you know, bees are, you know, bees are absolutely integral to, um, you know, to our society, the food we eat um, and, you know, the general nature. Because if, if bees aren't doing well, then, you know, you know, Houston, we have a problem. So mm -hmm. we've got these four beehives. They basically are about 20 feet from our kitchen window and they're amazing. And, I mean, the flowers we have in the garden and we've planted our um, two-acre uh, property full of native trees and 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 flora, flora and all of these because what what you want for the bees is you're wanting them to have food all year round so we have even in the winter we've planted things that that give them um, nourishment during the winter months 
and the honey we get is just well you know i don't mean to sound biased but it is really beautiful it's very runny um golden in color but it has an amazing floral bouquet that you just don't get with bought honey so most people that i give honey to um, such as Katie Cullen in the United States, uh, you know, most people find they kind of do get a bit addicted to it because it's just really special. Well, you, you'll have to send some to me and Ian so we can taste after this. <laughs> I'm glad you asked rather than me, Amelia. Yep. <laughs> Happy to do so. Happy to do and, so. and your wine collection as well. There's so much, I mean, I'd love to hear about that too. I hear it's from all um, over the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's unique. The, um, the one that I often get asked about is, um, because I, I had the opportunity, I um, put in a, a tender bid back in, I think it was around 2010, 2011, and I bought the government, as in the New Zealand government, ceremonial uh, wine. Uh, that was around, I think it was around 4,800 4, bottles. You had to bid for it blind because you it was within... Um, two security clearances within um, parliamentary buildings. So I wasn't able to go in and actually see what was there. They just gave me a three-year-old stale spreadsheet and said, well, this is what you've got to bid on. And anyway, so, so a lot of the, the, the cellar uh, that I have here is a lot of the former uh, government wine. So there were all these amazing bottles back um, back to the early, oh, no, um, I was going to say early 90s. Actually, they go back to the early 80s. Um, an absolute treasure trove. Now, it may sound like a lot of wine, you know, 4,800 bottles. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. 60% of it was white wine and, and it was absolutely shot. So I had a huge recycling run that week. <laughs> so did you know much about wine going into that or was it just a kind of bit of circumstance? Um, no, 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 no. I knew I... I'd already started a, um, a really nice collection of wine, predominantly um, New Zealand focused, although with a massive domestic home bias to our local province of Hawke's Bay. I mean, we do some beautiful, beautiful wine. I am very biased and I, yeah, rightly so, beautiful. <laughs> and um, so I already had that, but um, a lot of the, I mean, you know, a lot of people that live in wine growing regions, you're just exposed to so much wine. So, you know, it's just, it's shared at dinner, you know, when you're, you know, you, when you're a child, you get to learn how to pour wine, taste wine, and it's just really good fun. So I think it's something that kind of is in the fabric of your family, of your kind of DNA and how things are done. So it's naturally a, an affliction that one has to um, start collecting wine and, and have some fun. And the best part, like with the honey, you know, wine is to be shared and, you know, enjoyed with others. It's special. Yeah, I'm very jealous. Ian and I need to plan a trip to try both of these now. <laughs> so before we jump into questions, it would be great to just hear a bit more about Stewart Group and you know this unique family culture with you know your dad working there and, and now you as a CEO. And um, we'd love to dive into that. The business was founded in 1986. Although my father's been in financial services, you know, prior to me being born, I'm a 76er, and he started in the industry in '74. So. So in a regional area um, where our head offices, um, you know, that's, that's quite an old financial planning business, um, which, which is great. So I've now been here for, for 20 years and the, the kind of, you know, family values and family culture, I think, is really important because A, our business is not for sale. It's an intergenerational play, which is really exciting. I just, I just love that. So we can take an incredibly 
long view or use a very long lens in our planning. So for example, you know, we have a really lovely building that we own. Well, we are able to do things that you wouldn't do if you were signing a six year lease. Um, it's a little bit like when you think about um, um, say Chinese culture or uh, Maori culture um, in New Zealand, you know, when, when, for example, when we are managing money for an iwi or an iwi is, is the New Zealand word for like a tribe, when we are managing money for a tribe here, you know, it's not a 10 year investment. It's an intergenerational investment. And I like to think that that's how we treat our business and, and our culture and the way that we form and shape our decisions. Um, I think one of the key things we did that was, uh, you know, and very early in the piece, when I first came in um, and then three years later became a, um, a shareholder, was that we wanted some um, independent voices around the table because otherwise it would just be uh, my father and I and, um, you know, some peripheral family members. So we formed uh, an advisory board uh, way back in 2003 and that was just so beneficial to have people that, you know, wanted to nurture us as individuals, people that knew our family and knew our values, but were able to, you know, I, I guess, um, throw a few stones in the glasshouse. Yeah. And it, well, it seems like you're really embedded in the local community, which is obviously a great hmm. thing. Um, so, so what's the scene like in New Zealand? You know, does that, does that distinguish you from your peers? Because, you know, we've spoken to people in different parts of the world already. And it seems like most regions don't necessarily have a strong culture of financial planning. So are you very different in your region or is New Zealand actually, you know, quite forward thinking on the whole? Um, no, no, I would, um, I wouldn't say New Zealand is, I mean, New Zealand, we are forward thinking in many things, but I think financial planning, we're not. Um, we're uh, generally uh, dominated by broking houses or what in the United States would be referred to as wire houses. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of advice is not, um, of a fiduciary nature. So many people find when they seek recourse or a better understanding of um, decisions, um, when they hold a position of governance, actually find the advice they've been given um, was an investment selection on an execution only mandate. So in other words, there's, there was no real advice. So for us and what we've done is, you know, we, we hold a, um, we hold CFEX certification. So we've, you know, embedded fiduciary standards into our business, both, both on a retail and wholesale basis across all arms of our business. We think that's really important. Um, but it's also that the, the whole concept of going further from just financial advice, but actually delving into financial planning and mm -hmm. actually wanting to know more than just, you know, where is the money? We're wanting to get an understanding of the goals and objectives of the client or the underlying entity, because ultimately the management of capital is a flow on downstream uh, activity of having really sound goals and objectives and excellent planning. It's only a byproduct. So for us, we've flipped it on its head. And that is, I mean, yeah, there are not many people who have focused like that, that I am aware of. Mm -hmm. And when we, we talked to actually Sam Instone about this in Dubai and Simon Parfit as well in Paramount Wealth in Hong Kong. And they were saying that there, that was an issue too. There was a lot of the independence um, out there that didn't hold those fiduciary standards. So how do people in New Zealand, you know, watch out for that? I don't, I actually don't think they're actually aware of it at the present time. We've got wow. a, um, 
so you think about, you know, New Zealand, you know, we're, you know, at the bottom of the world. Um, and a lot of things arrive here um, quite late. So, for example, things like um, regulations and industry standards, we are frequently, um, unfortunately, a little bit of a laggard in that sense. So a lot of people don't even know what a fiduciary is. They don't understand what a fiduciary standard is. Um, you know, when you... Uh, when we're struggling to get people to understand that they haven't actually been given any advice, they've actually just been given uh, an investment menu. It kind of tells you about the the journey that we are going on um, as a nation. Um, some of that regulation that underpins the change is coming, and it's going to come very, very fast. We, uh, as a country, we embraced um, trusts. Um, now, I know that even our cousins over the ditch, they're aware of what a trust is in a terms of a corporate structure, but it's not used very often. Whereas in New Zealand, you know, we're a population of 5 million people. Um, I remember when I was studying um, uh, in my uh, first year of high school, New Zealand, we only had 3.5 million people back then. And it was, um, you know, about 30 years ago. So we don't have that many people. And yet uh, we have somewhere between 300 and 500,000 trusts in the country. And, um, in January of next year, um, yeah, for example, that on the trust structure, the governance framework and the regulatory requirements all commence in January. So we think that, you know, through regulation, we think that a lot of people are going to start to understand what a fiduciary is, but they're not, it's, they're not going to learn um, by, by their own volition. It's going to be through um, the government you know, lifting the bar, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, and on the, the government side of things, um, you know, we mentioned this a bit earlier, but mm. you know, when did your passion for politics in New Zealand begin? And, you know, your interest in that, how has it influenced perhaps the way you run your, your practice? Yeah, well, um, interest in politics was from a very young age. Um, it was just something that was discussed uh, in the family home um, and during my um, schooling. I guess, you know, if you happen to have a couple of influential teachers in your younger years in those formative period, in the formative period, naturally it will sway you. Um, and, and I just really, really enjoy it. Um, you know, perhaps uh, in another life, um, <laughs> I might have headed down the political channel, but um uh, but but that wasn't to be, and um, yeah, and certainly my wife's a, an extremely private person. I can remember when um, I remember being at a dinner party and asked if I would want to go into politics, and that you know there would be a plan laid out in terms of a time frame. And my I remember I'd only just been I'd only just got married to my wife, and Jenny just said, "Well, if you want to do that, I didn't marry you to be a politician's wife. So if you do that, you'll be on your own." So that. <laughs> effectively parked my political career to the sideline. So instead of focusing directly on politics, I instead took a took an angle that, you know, I enjoy the process, I enjoy being involved. And I also find that a lot of people, they complain about politics, they complain about regulation. So instead, we took a more, um, as a business, we took a, a more embracing approach. So, you know, we, we turn up to parliament and we present to select committees. We actively, um, you know, are involved in politics, you know, not just on one side of the fence, you know. Um, you know, Noah's boat was full of lots of animals, so I have lots of political friends of, of all colours and, persu and persuasions. Um, and, it's, and it's really interesting. So 
and you, you, you actually get to have an input on what's happening uh, into policy and ultimate regulation. Now, you know, it's a, there's a long lead time on these things. It can be, you know, two to, two to five years. But I think I would rather do that than be a person and a business who sits back post the event. So after the bill has reached royal assent and the ink's dry, people then start complaining about regulation. So instead, we prefer to roll up our sleeves and get involved early on. We're speaking to people during lockdown, and New Zealand's you know, policies mm. appear to have been very successful until you unwisely let some British people in. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, how I know people make that mistake all the time, it keeps happening. But um, anyway, I mean, how has that helped you? Because when we've spoken to people, um, you know, there's all sorts going on with the markets right now. Uh, people have to mm. think about how they write new business, how they meet people, how they deal with their staff. Uh, the technology they employ, all that kind of stuff. So, so how how has you know Jacinda Ardern's kind of policy and approach helped you? You know, has has, has it been business as usual basically? Well, I actually I don't I don't think it's been business as usual on the basis because the way that the government acted very decisively and quite quickly early on when a lot of the rest of the world were kind of sitting and waiting and perhaps a little bit in denial that um, about how bad it was going to be. So for us, you know, it, we were, you know, we effectively had about 48 hours and going from um, status quo to working in a remote environment. It was, it was very, very quick. Um, so I think we had to adapt very quickly. So for us, the whole concept of lockdown, working remotely, working from home, um, just became second nature. But we didn't have a lot of time to plan for it. Um, New Zealanders are quite are, are an adaptable people. Um, I guess being, you know, a, a slightly more modern state on the planet, you know, most of most New Zealanders, um, you know, well, we, you know, we're all former colonialists, effectively. Um, so, you know, they, you know, most people came to New Zealand seeking a better life and have, and are incredibly adaptable people. And I think that's why we're in the position we are today. Although I wouldn't say we're through the woods yet, because. Mm-hmm. You know, you've only got to have one person, some idiot who jumps out <laughs> of the quarantine hotel, who's infected yeah. and decides to go down and get a, um, you know, a Big Mac and a side of fries and infects a whole restaurant and you've got a community contagion. So touch wood, that doesn't happen. But, you know, we aren't through the woods yet. Yeah. I mean, did you have to change anything about the way you do business during this? Um, yeah, yeah, we needed to make sure that everyone was incredibly tech savvy very, very quickly. So I can remember, I can actually remember on the evening of lockdown, you had till midnight. My father, my mum and dad had just come back from cycling down in Westland, which is right down the bottom of the South Island, very, very remote uh, part of the country. Absolutely stunning. And down where Queenstown is in the mountains. And, um, and I rushed into the office. I basically disassembled my dad's desk everything and uh, took it home and just got them all set up because I knew that um, a, uh, unless everything was absolutely as he needed it, um, yeah, uh, it wasn't going to work. So, so some of us needed a little bit of guidance on that. But um, for the most part, fortunately, we'd been through a, a very comprehensive um, IT upgrade across um, all, our, all of our um, hardware over the last two years, and we'd already moved um, to cloud over the last decade for CRM, research tools, our platform, yeah. et cetera. So look, fortunately for us, it was really, really good. But um, I would imagine for some, 
uh, would it would have been incredibly disruptive and in fact to operate their business they probably would have actually had to have broken the law in other words sneak into the you know sneak into the office in the covers of the cover of darkness and and leave <laughs> on the same way out because you just i mean some people cannot operate at home or they weren't able to with the you know very narrow window to uh, to operate and get up and running yeah, and I think I think we do the teasers for this episode. People had to break the law, as we will end that quote. Um, always, <laughs> always, always good to leave people with a bit of that. Um, but yeah. it's funny you mentioned the, the, the tech stuff, though. I mean, I geek out on this stuff a bit. Um, and we were speaking to David Andrew a few weeks back in Australia, you know, from Capital Partners, hmm. about how he had a, a data breach and how he dealt with that. Uh, and our our moles. Uh, informed us that you went on a national well, a trip to Israel to learn more about mm. the best cybersecurity efforts. So, so what did you learn from that? Uh, well, I learned that what, what an amazing country, um, you know, an absolute privilege uh, to travel to Israel and actually get to see what was going on, see what goes on. Now, the particular day we were there with a, um, an amazing company um, and they look after um, cybersecurity. That's all they do. Um, uh, headquartered in Tel Aviv, um, but listed on the NYSE. And that particular company, we were there on the day that the WannaCry virus went live. Do you do you, you, do you remember that name, WannaCry? Um, and um, yeah, it, I do. It was yeah. Effective. Yeah. So we, we, we were actually meeting with them the day that that happened. So we got ushered into a room with um, their um, effective defense team. And it was just incredible on how they were saying, effectively, you cannot protect yourself entirely. I mean, you know, you just have to be ready to react. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, that was intriguing. So in other words, it's your ability to respond and deal with the issue because ultimately everyone at some stage is going to have a breach. It's how you react that counts. Um, And I love the part how the Israelis told us that really good businesses want to know how vulnerable they are, not how great they are. They want to know where the weaknesses are. So that whole concept of, you know, the kind of red hat, white hat, and getting people to probe and test and find failures, I just thought was yeah, was really cool. And I guess, you know, a country that's surrounded by people that aren't exactly best buddies, you know, um, mm-hmm. they are constantly testing where they are vulnerable. And, you know, I really like that on the basis of cybersecurity. Um, yeah, I must say, though, you know, like um, an incredibly dynamic country and people that are really, really hungry to innovate and grow. Um, it's, it's, to, it's, yeah, an incredible vibe. Really cool. That's fascinating. And just on the topic of, you know, David Andrew, as Ian mentioned, oh. and our mole, which, as you know, is Katie Cullen. Um, you guys <laughs> I like to are, pretend we have more moles than we do, Amelia. Yep, it's, it's just this one. It's just this one. Um, but you're a part of or founding member of this global association of independent advisors. Um, so I, I'd love to know how it's helped you in your career being connected with these advisors all over the world. You know, Ian and I are, are trying to do that now ourselves and we are learning so much every day. So we'd love to hear from you on, you know, how this has helped you. Sure. Look, well, you know, again, you know, I don't mean to keep talking about New Zealand being at the bottom of the world, but, you know, we are and we can be really, really isolated. You know, Kiwis love to travel. Uh, and as part of that travel, 
is meeting really good people and bringing and bringing and sharing ideas because it's intriguing, even though, you know, we, we may speak, um, you know, we're a bilingual country here in New Zealand. We, the, the issues that we face and are going to face and maybe, you know, have faced in the past are, are very, very similar to what others have been through or are going through. So it's, and it's incredible when you sit around, you sit, you sit with people for, you know, I don't mean just like a dinner or a drink. I mean like days and it's amazing. And, and when there's collegiality, of course, and camaraderie, it's amazing what you can learn because so just as we speak to one another, regulators around the world also speak to one another. So for example, when I know that we've got a major piece of legislation landing here starting on the 15th of March next year, it's effectively a copy and paste of the legislation that the Australians rolled out about a decade ago, almost word for word. In fact, there were even some mistakes in the legislation on the transcript. That's quite phenomenal. Um, yeah, so it's amazing what we can learn when we discuss things. And also, you know, I talk about the collegiality and I mean real collegiality. Like when you have a problem, you know, you can reach out and someone who's on the other side of the world in a different time zone is prepared to take the call. And mm -hmm. during COVID, we had, you know, amazing discussions about what was going on in businesses, you know, what was happening with clients in terms of, you know, you know, what was it like to deal with someone who was suffering from COVID and who, who was quite sick? And, you know, what were the downstream effects of that? Um, and I mean, for us sitting here, we had no community contagions in um, in the region where I where I live, which is really fortunate. But to talk to others where they were living with it, you know, full, you know, the disease was full blown in their community, um, was really really helpful in us with our planning in terms of briefing our team and talking to our clients. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me a lot of the best people do have this collegiate approach and are part of a group of some sort um certainly in, in the uk and, and some of the people we've met out in the us too um i mean what's the best bit of advice you, you've had throughout all this the best the best advice is that when when these groups are, st are starting that you that you can speak your mind and you can speak the unspoken truth because i think a lot of people they join these groups and it's kind of you know, it's fun to get together and they get a few ideas, but, but really a lot of it is only skin deep. And to be honest, it just, it doesn't have the carry. I mean, if you're going to um, form a global group and commit serious capital and time, so both tangible and intangible, um, it's really expensive. So you will really want to make sure that you get some value and that there's real glue. Um, and I think that some of the failings of the um, of groups that, that I've seen in the past, they just they just don't have the carry on the long term. Whereas I look at there is um, you know I look at Gaia and I look at the um, former group that merged into Gaia from Australasia. Well, we we had our first meeting in in Sydney in two thousand three, and that's wow, that's a long time. That's you know. Yeah, you know, we know a lot about one another. I mean, I was, I mean, for me, I was not married. I had no kids. In fact, um, I was, I didn't even own a home at the time. I mean, it, I mean, mm -hmm. it's amazing, you know, that, so in other words, what I'm getting at, the journey that we have all had, uh, we've, you know, lived in, you know, lived 
each other's kind of dreams and, and successes and failures over what's coming up now for almost two decades. That's really special. Can't be replaced. Definitely. And, and to flip this now, I mean, at the end of our podcast, Nick, we always ask this question. It's sort of your one final parting shot. So for all of you know, the advisors listening in around the world, what is one piece of advice you would pass on to them, either throughout this, these times or what you've learned in your career over the years? To stay true to your values so that you have carry and duration in your job. So to become a master at something, you need to do something repetitively for a long period of time. So if you're going to you know, use that lens, then make sure you understand your true values and what, what empowers you to get out of bed each day. You know, is, it, is it to help people? Um, and find what your, that, that absolute passion because it's incredible, you know, when I reflect on, when I look at my father and, you know, he, he's, he absolutely loves helping people. And I think that's really special that, that over, I mean, Don's, Don's been doing this for, you know, the thick end of four, four and a half decades. And that knowledge, because of the fact that he knew what his values were, um, you know, he's been able to help so many people. So it's like dropping a, a pebble in the pond. The ripple goes out a long way. So I just encourage people to, to, to stick true to what they are passionate about. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what can be done and can be delivered. You know, one and one equals three. Yeah, no, and you've definitely done that at the Stewart Group. So on that wonderful note, um, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for. But thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Advice Around the World. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening in and stay tuned for next week where we hear from an advisor with clients in Perth, Bali and Portland. Over and out.